0: Are you the type of person that prefers the good news before the bad news or the bad news before the good news? Which one is it? There's a lot of psychological mumbo jumbo about what type of person picks good news before the bad news or who picks the bad news before the good news. I prefer, personally, I'm just going to open this up to you. I know this is going to form a lot of your sermon critique after this, but I prefer the bad news first. And I'll tell you why. I prefer the bad news first because I like getting it out of the way, uh, not really. I like uh, understanding the good news that somebody has for me. I like understanding the bad news in light of the good news. We're working through Revelation here. We're almost halfway through, and we have to be honest. Revelation isn't filled with bad news, but it is filled with tough news. And in our minds and in our hearts, we might just lose sight of that. We might just think about, especially I'm thinking about uh, chapter 9 and the seals and the trumpets and all this judgment that is going on. If we lose sight of the good news, if we lose sight of what God is doing in the midst of all of this, we might just turn the tough news into bad news. In our hearts, we might give into despair over what God is doing. If we don't have a right understanding of where God is bringing us to through the work of making all things new, it is going to affect our trust in who God is and the way that we live in the world now. Revelation has revealed this to us, the judgment, the destruction, the persecution. It's raised a lot of unknowns in our hearts think about ourselves, we think about the closest people to us, we think about the world around us, and Revelation, in what it has described to us, might be raising more question marks than answers. Today, we're going to see a lot of question marks in this passage. But the thing that's going to link all of this together for us is that God is the promise keeper. God is the promise keeper. And we need to remember, not just our destination, not that there's good news at the end of Revelation, but what we need to remember is the one who gets us there. The one who is not only bringing us the tough news here in order to prepare us, but also the one who is going to get us to the good news, the perfection of his will, and that is God. Focusing on the goal of God's plan, focusing on God himself and how he is the promise keeper, provides us with a crucial thing that we all need, which is hope. We look around at ourselves and our families and the world around us, and if we are not focused on the news of what God is doing through his Son, then that bad news turns into numerous things. Grief, despair, anxiety. And today we're going to see, and this is the big idea for our passage, that God's promise keeping instills hope, and hope is what we need. Look at me here with chapter 10. We get right into it. We see in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel. We saw a previous mighty angel in chapter 5 who had the sealed scroll. This one is a different one. He still comes down from heaven. And here we read four characteristics. We see that he is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. So we know by now in Revelation that each one of these things means something specific. And so we're going to dissect the image here of this mighty angel. First of all, he's coming down from heaven. So we know that he was with God. We see that again as his face was like the sun, In the same way that when Moses came down from the mountain and his face shone like the sun because he was in the presence of God, we know that this angel is coming down from the presence of God. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of this passage, right? That this is the message from God. What should we think about this cloud? He's wrapped in this cloud. You get the image of him being wrapped in a cloak, in a robe of cloud. This is a, an image of God's presence, right? That through this message, right, this is actually God's message for us. Then we read here next, with a rainbow over his head, right? This could either be from shoulder to shoulder, kind of like a big arc, an arbor, or it could be a crown, that he would have a rainbow crown. Either way, though, it kind of points to the same thing. It points that this message, this angel, has the, has the uh, message of mercy here. Uh, we think about God's mercy in representing the rainbow, right, to Noah. Again, the sun face, right, his face that shines like the sun, that is a representation of God's glory. And then finally, we look at his legs here. And this is uh, just an image that we put all together. It, it's weird in our heads to put this all together, but his legs were like a pillar of fire. All right this is uh, of course back to the wilderness right where god delivered right he he showed israel where to go through the exodus leading them to the promised land the angel here the image of the angel the reason why john spends so much time describing this in such short yet full detail is because this angel images two things for us it's that christ is powerful right he is the glorious one and his mission here is to deliver, right? This message that the, that the angel is about to give to us is about Christ's power to deliver. But it's not just the image of the angel. It's also what he does. Look at verse 2 here. And he held a little scroll opened in his hand. So we already ran into one scroll previously. This was the sealed scroll, the one with the seven seals, and only Jesus could open it. And Jesus did open it, and that started the judgment, right? The first seven seals of judgment. This scroll, though similar, is not the same scroll. This one is a little scroll. So what what he's getting at here is that the scroll holds the same message, right? The same message that the first scroll did, that the Lord does have a time for judgment, but it's not just that he holds this little scroll, this little message of judgment, but we see also where he stands. Again, John is giving this full picture of what is going on here. In verse 2, he says, He put his right foot on the sea and his left on land. The stance and the scroll here, the stance of the angel being that God has the dominion over all things. That both the sea and the land are under God's authority. And so that means that if you work backwards with me, it means that the message of judgment, what the contents of the little scroll is, is that that is for the whole world. That the whole world is under the authority of God's desire to judge. But it also means that the, that the images of deliverance that this angel is manifesting in means that also Jesus has the power and authority to deliver in this world. The messenger is about to get into uh, the, this call out to the Lord. But before he does that, we see him do this in verse 3. He called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. So you kind of get the image that he throws his head back and screams, I'm not going to do it for you. Here, uh, it would be obnoxious. But he throws his head back, and he's about to proclaim, right? In the same way that a lion throws his head back and roars as a as a uh, as as an image of his dominance over whatever it is, like a carcass or something. Um, the angel here is going to proclaim the authority of this message. But before he does that, before we get to the message, verse 4, we are given one of those things that we look forward to asking God in heaven. What does this mean? In verse 4, we see, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write them down. There's a lot of debate over this. And if I explained it all to you, it would dry out your eyeballs as it did mine. But I don't want to do that. We really, uh, we really don't know. There's a lot of speculation here. The closest thing we get to is uh, Psalm 29 where it says that the Lord speaks as the thunders that's about as close as we can get to any, anything here. Probably what's going on is this is a response from heaven to the, the soon-to-be-proclaimed message. We've seen that a few times in Revelation so far, that right before a message is delivered, that there's a response. The elders respond. The six-winged angels respond beforehand, usually in praise. But here we read that the seven thunders were going to respond, and they did respond but then, contrary to what John has been doing this whole entire time, he was actually told from heaven not to write it down. Right? Remember in chapter 1, Jesus told John, write down everything you see. Do the best you can as it all flooding past you. But here, this voice from heaven says, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And there's more speculation about this, but probably what it means is at the end of verse or chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, that the, that the world did not repent. In light of the fifth and sixth trumpet, God's call to repent or the final judgment will come and they refuse to repent. It's probably the same situation as uh, Pharaoh was looking at in Exodus, where because of his hard heart, because he had totally devoted himself to being obstinate to what the Lord had provided for him, the messages of his might and power and the prophecy to deliver his people, and yet he still had the hard heart. Eventually, God said, okay, I'm not going to deliver my message anymore. So most likely, most likely, this is another message to repent before God's promise of judgment kicks in. But since everybody won't hear it, seals it up. All right, back to the angel. Verse 5 here. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. He said, there will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the angel here finally gets to what he is going to say, finally gets to this message. We see him, again, this, this understanding that he, is, that he is, has dominion over everything here. As he, John repeats that, he sees him standing on the sea and the land. Again, reiterating in our hearts that what he is about to deliver to us is for us. Verse 6, swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created everything. Right. This message is not only from God, but it's by God's power, right? It comes with the authority of God himself, the creator, king. And then finally, the message itself, right here before verse 7. There will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to servants the prophets. This is good news for us. Here, the angel is saying there will no longer be a delay. The sixth trumpet has blown, the seventh is approaching, the, the woes will come through, and finally, God's judgment will be complete. As much as this is good news, we also see here that it's sort of a mystery. It's a mystery to be completed. The messenger is talking about God's will. And throughout Revelation, really throughout the whole entire Bible, we've been slowly caught up to speed about what God's mystery is. We read that God's mystery, of course, is shown in Jesus Christ as Jesus himself was judged for our sin and yet delivered from the tomb back up to heaven for us. We also see that the mystery of God is that he would even want sinners to be a part of his eternal family. Much of what is said here in the mystery of God is ought to, should have us be thinking about the entire plan that God has had from the beginning to the end here. And with the end closely approaching, quickly approaching with no more delay, as the angel says, we need to think about what God's will is. The eternal creator king will soon complete his promise to judge and to deliver. Everything here from from the image of the angel to where he's standing, the little scroll in his hand, even to the oath that he has, it's pointing to one thing. That God is sovereign to fulfill his plan of judging sin and delivering his people. And we need to think about this because in much of the same way that uh, we struggle to see this day in and day out, again, the mystery here is, is meant to broaden our minds, not just to think here at the end of time, God's mystery will finally be completed, but to think over the entire stretch of the Bible from beginning to end, God has been doing this slowly and surely for us. God's plan hasn't changed. It's always been to judge sin and deliver his people. Much of the imagery that the, that the angel has here, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, face was like a sun, his legs were like pillars of fire. This pulls that Old Testament imagery here to the end, right? To the finale of history. That God is reminding us through the presence of his angel that there is judgment and there is deliverance. We think about the, the cloud and how that represents the temple, right? God's presence, not just in heaven, but God's presence here and now. You think about the rainbow and how Noah saw that as a sign of God's mercy against our sin, that Noah was delivered through the ark, through the waters of judgment. And then at, at the end of that, he was promised that God is a merciful God. Think about his face like a sun. How could anybody, Moses himself, right? One of the chief good proponents of the Bible, right? He was even allowed to stand in the presence of God. How can any one of us stand in the presence of God? How can any of us be before the glorious creator king? And then finally, all right, pillars of fire, that out of the judgment, out of God's proven might in Egypt, He continued the work of delivering his people to the promised land. To a land where the relationship between his people and him as their God would be fulfilled. God here is showing that from the beginning to the end, he is the promise keeper. And his promises stand, they do not change, and they're fulfilled in Christ. Why do we need to hear this? Why do we need to hear this? It's because the promise of God's fulfillment of judgment and deliverance, brings us hope now. We're not here in this passage. We're not standing between an angel looking at him, standing in the middle of the ocean and on land at the same time. This is not yet for us. But God is reminding us through his word that there will come a time when his message will be complete. And as we wait for that day, as we eagerly wait for that day, we need hope. We need hope in order to persevere. We we might not be standing before this angel, listening to him do all these things, but we are standing in a moment of time. And chapter 10 is a good representation of where we're standing in time. If you remind yourselves at the end of chapter 9, we hinted at this already, that the people Of the earth did not repent. Those who have chosen to be obstinate towards the message of the Lord have not chosen to repent. They have not turned away from their sin. They have not turned back to the Lord. They have not trusted Him for this promised deliverance. But chapter 9 ends with that, and chapter 11 picks up, and I won't steal Ryan's thunder for next Sunday, but we do need to look at this. It picks up with the witness of the church suffering martyrdom. And here we're we're given this message of hope because we're stuck between these two parts of history. We're stuck in this land where people are not repentant to the message of God. And instead of repentance, what's actually coming out, the more that the message of God is being presented is actually persecution. Uh, instead of turning away from sin and toward God, the people around us, maybe even in our own hearts sometimes, when we think about just our own struggle with sin, we're actually turning away from God and towards those who are faithful. Satan here is championing this movement. And just so we're all on the same page, why, why would Satan boil up persecution against the church? Why would Satan boil up uh, this, this anger against the message of God? It's meant to distract us. It's meant to discourage us. It's meant to drain our hope out of what God's promises are. It's actually meant to despair us from God. And maybe today, this is where you're at. Maybe today, given all the relationships, given the current news cycle, given all the the stimuli that we have from the world around us, maybe today we're thinking that, is God really worth it? I mean, today our hearts are being given over to this despair. And I think there's light despair and I think there's heavy despair. Heavy despair being everything is worthless. I'm no longer doing this. I'm done here. But light despair would say, is this little thing worth it? Am I really supposed to be that faithful in my family? Am I really supposed to be that faithful at church? Am I really supposed to be that faithful in my workplace? In all these little moments of doubt and all these little moments of sin, what's, what's promoting that in us is despair. All right? That we think that God has broken away from us, or we think that God isn't keeping his promises. In Satan's energy to make us despair from God, we need this message that the Lord is the promise keeper. And because he's the promise keeper, when we look to his promises, he instills hope in us. We despair. Of course, every once in a while, maybe all the time, whatever it might be. But in each one of these moments, we look up to God. Much of, much of Revelation recently has been happening from John's point of view down, right? Now here he is back on earth looking at this angel. And the refrain over and over throughout Revelation is that God is in heaven. We see these voices coming down from heaven, right? God is up in heaven where he is the sovereign king over all things. And these moments where we finally get our, our understanding of our own despair cornered in a sense. We've kind of located it, or maybe it's just overwhelming. We can't just locate why we are in despair. The book of Revelation continually tells us to look up, to look up. I think one of the major reasons why Satan can distract us from God, discourage us from God, cause us to despair in, in God and who he is and his promises is because he makes these things, these situations, so Overwhelming. That the tidal flood of bad news coming at us is just too much. But God calls us to look up because nothing is too much for him. He is the promise keeper. I just wonder, when you find yourself in despair, where do you look? Some of us look straight into the heart of the bad news, just trying to scrounge some good news out of it, force it out ourselves. While God is calling us to look up, to look at himself. When despair comes, we look to God, who is our promise keeper. I think hope looks like two things, especially as we're stuck between chapter 9 and chapter 11 here. Right? If the world is going to get worser and worser, which is great grammar, if you're wondering, if the world is going to get worser and worser, then we need to get hopier and hopier. Again, perfect grammar. Uh, don't tell Ryan about that one. But what does that hope look like? If, if we're wondering, I know what despair looks like, but what does hope look like? Well, hope looks like two things. The first is this, that we persevere no matter the cost, right? In, in our time here, I would I would boldly say that none of us are looking at the consequence of actual physical death for our faith, right? Again, one of those unknowns is how long until that happens, right? But here in this moment, we're not really looking at that all that much, but we are looking at, What it looks like to put to death certain things in our life for the glory of Christ. What it looks like to put to death our calendar. What it looks like to put to death our desire for money or for this thing or whatever it might be. What it looks like to put to death our reputation in order to stand, to be hopeful in God and his promises. What it would cost us in order to remain faithful to the Lord. Hopefully our minds swirl with all the things that we think about that we can be using for God's glory. But in all those things, what's going to get us there is hope in the one who is able to provide the promises and their fulfillment. So the hopeful persevere no matter the cost. In hope, we remain faithful. But the second one is when we are caught in despair, when we think we are about to be caught in despair, when when the overwhelming tide of bad news hits, right? When other people start talking out loud to us about our faith, the hopeful call out to God in anguish. Daniel chapter 12 is given a very similar, very similar vision to this. He's given this message of God's judgment and deliverance and the angel at that time says you need to wait and if you just remember Daniel's predicament right he's in exile he knows the promises of God that God will one day bring his people back to that promise and restore that relationship and of course we were looking forward to Christ for that but you just got to put yourself in Daniel's shoes there for one moment what would it be like to hear the news that God will one day make everything right and yet say wait Daniel asks two huge questions of God. And I think these are questions that we ask as well. He asks, how long, O oh Lord? How long do I need to wait? And the second one is, Lord, what will be the outcome? When all your promises are fulfilled, when waiting is no longer, what will that look like? What will that look like? I mean, we find ourselves asking those same questions even Today. Lord, how long do I need to wait for this? How long until your promises, your will, your mystery is finally complete before me? And what will that look like? The Lord said, (laughs) this is amazing. I love this. Because on one hand, it doesn't answer the question. On the other hand, it totally answers the question. But the Lord says, wait, for you know who I am. Right? He's pointing Daniel... To the faithful action of waiting, remember that hopefulness, but then also saying you can have that hope because you know who I am. Daniel's questions aren't answered directly, but the Lord, by showing Daniel who the promise keeper is, instills hope that Daniel would be able to wait, to have that hope. We know God is the promise keeper because I just told you, and you wrote it down in your notes. No, we know that God is the promise keeper because, again, we look from the beginning to the end. And who's the faithful one? It's not us. It's not those around us. It's God. God is the promise keeper because he ended up fulfilling his promise to provide his son for us. We ask these questions. What does God's mercy look like? Will the outcome of his mercy be... How could anybody ever stand in God's glory? How could anybody ever be in the presence of God when I know deep down inside that I am a sinful person? How could God ever keep that promise? He keeps it in Jesus. So yes, we look at the very beginning. We track it all the way through to the very end. We understand that God is faithful on either end. And we know that the absolute best representation, the perfect representation of God's promise-keeping faithfulness is that Jesus was provided to make a way for us to be with Christ. Maybe today you know that you are overwhelmed in despair. Maybe today you'd be honest to say, my despair isn't just this opaque despair, but it's actually despair in who God is. I know what I need to know about God. I know all these promises. You might even say, I know that God is the promise keeper, and yet my hope falters. The objective here is to look to Christ, to know that our hope is not only provided to us through Christ, But our hope is actually worth it in God because of what Christ has done. We might stare down all these difficult, overwhelming areas of life. And yet when we look up who we see in heaven, we'll see Jesus. And it's no mystery to us that Jesus came a first time. But in God's fulfillment of his judgment and his deliverance, Jesus comes a second time. Jesus here is the center point of hope between what has come before us and what is to be before us. We look to Christ for our hope. God proves that he is the promise keeper through Jesus. So there will no longer be a delay. The seventh angel will blow the seventh trumpet. Then the mystery of God will be completed. And as he announced this to his servants, he announces it to us now through John. But he doesn't just tell us this message so that we would have hope and hunkered down. He tells us this message so that we would be faithful to persevere in the mission of the church. Look at verse 8 here. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And here we just need to remember, right? The, the big scroll, the one that Jesus popped the seven seals on that had the will of God to judge and to deliver. Now this little scroll, right, the same message that Jesus authorized is now being handed to John. So John is obedient, and he goes to the angel, verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, hand it over. And he said to me, take it and eat it. Okay, so what does this mean, right? Did he just ingest it, right? He didn't, right? What does this mean? It means that the message here of God's deliverance and judgment needs to become John's message. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 2. Again, we're looking back to the Old Testament here. Ezekiel was given a very similar message. And what God told him to do was to eat the scroll. Right? And in verse 9 here, we see this promise. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Ezekiel was told that the, that the law of God's judgment would actually be sweet. Right? That the message of God's judgment is sweet. But Here we read that this sweetness is also accompanied by a bitter stomach. Right? The bitterness will be in your belly as the sweetness of the honey is on your lips. What does this mean? means that John is to take the scroll, it's to be his message, and he is to understand that there is the good news and there is the tough news of God's deliverance and judgment. That the the sweetness of this message is that God is moving forward to deliverance. The bitterness of this message is that God judges sin. And that's a tough reality for us, right? That God would hold us accountable for our sin. But again, we look at the tough news in light of the better news, that Jesus is the one who secures our sweet salvation with God. But again, we're not hunkering down with this information. There's something we need to do with it. In verse 10, then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ingested it, right? He makes it the message his own. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about, another word there could be against, Many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. John here is given the task of presenting this message to those around him. And the church is commissioned to this, to bring God's bitter, sweet message to the world. We saw earlier that potentially in verse four, God held back the message to repent and believe in him before the judgment was fulfilled. And yet God's mercy still shines through because he gives John the message to proclaim. You must prophesy again about my deliverance and about my judgment to the people's, nation's, languages. The church takes on this role. We understand that the gospel is bittersweet news to those who do not believe. And I think a challenge for us is to have a balanced message. Not to be too judgment heavy, not to be too deliverance heavy, and then to have the appropriate, uh, the appropriate dashing of, hey, this is all really near. Maybe you guys can think about your heart, your conversations, your relationships, right? If you're a faithful Christian, you're proclaiming the word of God, you're proclaiming the gospel to others, where do you fall in that spectrum, right? Are you judgment heavy? Are you deliverance heavy? Do you have that immediacy that people need to respond to the truth of the gospel as soon as they can. And we need hope to do this because the people that we are asked to go forth and bring this bittersweet news to are those that reject it. The world around us is focusing in on the bitterness of this message. It's our job in that balance to be able to, yes, say that the message itself is bitter, but then also to be able to say, but it is also sweet. That the message of the gospel is sweet. This, of course, requires a clear understanding of God's sovereignty and plan. And if we have a clear understanding of that, we will have hope in order to do this. But it really comes down to this, that if we take God's promise-keeping seriously, then we'll take the message of the gospel to others who need to trust. If the God's promise of judgment and deliverance is important enough to us that we hold fast to it in order to have hope in all the areas where it seems hopeless, then it is important enough to bring that message to those who need the hope of Christ. This is a challenge here, not just have a balanced message, but to be faithful in bringing that message to the world around us. Are you faithful? Do you look at the bad news of the world around us and say, it's not worth it? I would ask you to think about uh, your, your venture out into the world with the message, the bittersweet message of the gospel. But then think about how God did that for us through Jesus. If we're thinking it's not worth it to go out into the world, out into our families, out into our children's lives, and to proclaim the gospel message, though it is bitter and sweet, And we need to think about in our own hearts, am I clinging fast to the true promise of God? I think a level of this is really that this bittersweetness of the scroll, I think why it's a little different than it is for Ezekiel, is because the truth of the, I should say the outcome of his proclamation of this will be bittersweet. Sweet in the sense that John will be faithful. He will go to those who have clearly rejected the truth of who Jesus is and bitterness in that he knows what's going to happen. In the same way the two witnesses will be persecuted, John knows that the more he brings this message out, the more the bitterness of persecution will come against him. And it's those moments where we face the bittersweet command of God to bring the gospel to those around us. To know that it is faithful and it is sweet news in Jesus But to understand, more likely than not, it's going to bring the persecution of those who have rejected the message. And once you know it? What do we need in order to be faithful to the bittersweet command of God? We need hope. We need hope to know that even though we might be persecuted, God's promises last. They are faithful to us through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, Father, we, we look at this and we... Understand the bittersweet news of the gospel. And Lord, we understand that there is the bittersweet uh, command to follow this as well. Pray, Lord, that through the work of your Spirit in us, we would come to understand that your will, uh, Father, is for our deliverance and for the judgment of sin. That one day you will recreate everything perfect in your Son, Jesus. I ask, Father, today that you would instill in us hope Hope, not just that everything will be made new, but hope in who you are. I ask, Father, that you would give us a clear picture of your faithfulness from Genesis all the way here through Revelation. And, Father, that would give us a hope that leads us to perseverance in faith. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.